and thank you, Shelley, for stepping up at the last minute. Um, we had some confusion on the roster. Um, I like the story of Zacchaeus. Uh, the, I think he's the wee little man. The wee little man was he. Uh, I grew up just kind of tangentially related to the church, but somehow this is one of the stories I know. Um, I think it has a vividness that um, that we're drawn to because just this, it's a funny image of a little man who can't see over the um, crowds who then climbs up in a tree to see Jesus. It has a there's a uh, cinematic quality to the story of Zacchaeus. Um, but as I've grown older, there's the story of Zacchaeus has affected me different than when I was when I was a child. I used to just be kind of fixated on how little he was. Uh, he's little like we are. Um, but as I've grown older, it's, just, it's moved more to what was the next day like for Zacchaeus? Because he's this little man who has lots of money, and he has a powerful encounter with Jesus, and he gives away half of his money to the poor. And then he says, anything I've defrauded people, I'm going to give that away. I'll get, make restitution for that too. And if he's thinking to bring that up, it's probably more than just a small portion of his income. So he's given away a decent chunk, 75% or so of his wealth after meeting Jesus. And then Jesus leaves. And he wakes up the next morning, still a short little man in a town where most of the people despise him. And what was he going to do after that? And Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he's going to die. The next thing he's going to hear about Jesus is that he's crucified. So what was Zacchaeus supposed to do? Um, and that's just, that's what, as I've been thinking through the parable that we're going to read, which is right after this story, and just the story of Zacchaeus, which kind of leads into it, this idea of the expectations we have and what we are to do in that, kind of the downtimes and how we're supposed to live there has been what I've been fixated on. Because we can have a wonderful meeting here. We can encounter God mightily. We can, after this, go out to dinner together, stay up late, drinking and toasting the king of heaven, and then we have to wake up tomorrow and go to work. Or the kids are going to get up tomorrow before you'd like them to. It's going, the week is going to continue going on. It happens on a larger scale where, I mean, you can go on a fantastic vacation. Um, I was just off work for a number of weeks. I wouldn't call it a vacation, but I was off work. But I still, eventually you go back into the regular cycle. You can go on a retreat and find yourself. And then you come back and realize, oh, I'm still here when I got back as well. Or there's the times when the church has gone through periods of revival. And God's spirit has been moving powerfully. And then for reasons known to God, that seems to ebb away. And how the church deals with that. And sometimes the messes that come when the church continues to act as though things were still the way they were. We like to preach, we think on Good Friday, big event, and Easter Sunday, big event, but we live most of our lives in Saturday, in that mid-period between the big events. And so what are we to do with that? Um, and this isn't a question that's only posed to Zacchaeus uh, here, because the crowds themselves are also hot with anticipation and expectation of what's to happen. Um, this, is, this story takes place in the tail end of the section that many of the parables we've read over this series have uh, fallen in, uh, where back in Luke 9, the disciples recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus is like, cool, we'll go to Jerusalem where they'll kill me. Um, that's what they do. And he turns, and that's immediately where he starts walking. And he's teaching along the way. And right now we are in Jericho, 
We're seven miles from Jerusalem. This is the parable we're going to teach on now is the last parable Jesus will teach before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This whole road journey he's been on, teaching, the crowds building, it's reaching its peak. It's reaching that spot. He's in Jericho. I mean, this is the first city Joshua goes to before he overthrows the people in the land. He's in this city about to go as the Messiah to the royal city where people expect him to come in and cast down the oppressive powers and take his rightful place as king, reigning from that city forever. And the story of Zacchaeus itself heightens the tension. Because Zacchaeus, as much as my Sunday school image of him is just this little harmless man that is improperly maligned by the taller people in town who just don't like him, they have a very solid reason to dislike Zacchaeus. He isn't just a short man. He is a short tax collector. Really, the shortness is beside the point. He is a tax collector. He is a person from Israel who has aligned himself with the oppressive occupying power to take money from his own people. And the way tax collectors made money was Rome says, you owe us a thousand per head. We don't care what you take from them. You can keep the difference. So he's basically limited by how much he can try and exhort, exhort, extort out of people. And as long as he doesn't push it too far, he can charge 1300, keep the 300 and return the thousand to Rome. And he's in great standing. So when he talks about defrauding, he's talking about the way he's been making money. This is a person who has come and turned against his people, not only for safety, but to actually make money off their backs, siding with the oppressive power. They have reason to hate him, but today, as Jesus says, what does he say? Today... Salvation has come to this house, to the house of Zacchaeus. Salvation has come, for he also is a son of Abraham. He is part of Israel. So as Jesus is approaching the city where he is to be crowned, as he is coming into Jericho, the city that is where the Israelites entered the land initially, as he's coming to this, he comes to take a person who has betrayed his people, a traitor, and he turns even him back towards Israel. Even in the story of Zacchaeus, you start to see the hold of Rome crumbling. So the anticipation is building. Today it's happening. Today we are on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Today Jesus is going to be crowned. So the people are hot with anticipation. There's a huge amount of expectation about what's to come. And that's what gives what actually gives rise to the parable that gets taught here. And this isn't just me extrapolating this. Luke says it explicitly. Um, In 19, verse 11, as they, that's the crowds around Jesus, heard these things, the things about Zacchaeus, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So the people are really excited about what's about to come. And Jesus needs to do a teaching. So he pauses to do a teaching here to help set the expectations for what is on the other side of this trip into Jerusalem. That brings us to the text, which is uh, saying in verse chapter 19, but starting in verse 12. Jesus said, therefore, a noble man 
went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. And he said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And he said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Not the easiest of parables, um, especially the way it ends. This is, there is a parallel version of this parable. Actually, there's a wonderful debate about the relationship between this parable and the parable of the talents in Matthew. Um, I think they're probably two similar parables that Jesus told at different times using different uh, measures of money. Um, I decided to use this one because the parable of talents, um, the word talent now has a great deal of baggage on it. Um, in that day, it was just a measure of money. We actually got our use of the f- word talent from the parable, not the other way around. Jesus didn't just coincidentally find a measure of money that happened to match up with the idea of a talent. It actually was repeated use, started to give rise to a use of the word talent. But now the, as words change, it can cloud our uh, reading looking back. So I decided to stick with this one, where instead of talents, we have minas. And then I discovered my um, iPad kept auto-capitalizing mina. Um, so I picked one of the only churches where there's still confusion as to what that term means. We are not talking about a Korean woman. Um, a mina uh, is a measure of money. It is, it's always, it's hard to do currencies just across the globe now. It's even more sketchy when you go 2,000 years, but it's roughly 20K. Just use that as a measure. So basically, a nobleman goes away. He has been given a kingdom, which is, this is not some obscure thing that Jesus made up like a new tradition. This would happen. There would be some turnover in power, and the people who could, had a, who had a claim to potentially have this king would go to the person who's like the emperor over the full area to make their case and receive the kingdom, to be named king of this area. This has happened historically in Jerusalem fairly recently when Jesus is telling us. Um, so he goes to do that. And while he, before he goes, the nobleman gives basically 20K to each of these 10 servants and tells them to go do business. And while he's going, there's a bunch of citizens who hate him and don't want him to be the king. They also go with him. 
to stop this. Their plan fails. He comes back as king and he looks to settle accounts. It's fairly straightforward in a nutshell. Um, parable. Um, it's worth noting just to help sort things out, kind of who Jesus is trying to represent by the various parties. Um, essentially, Jesus would be the nobleman who is the king coming. He has his servants who are the disciples, the followers who are tied to him tightly. And he has the citizens where he has the full powers, political and religious, who are opposed to him taking on this kingly position as Messiah, just to give some context to where this is. This is, and just to repeat, I think we've said this every week, this is not an allegory. You can't take every single thing in this parable and make it mean something deep and theological. It is trying to make a couple points about these things. Um, Just basically to sum them up, we have Jesus is saying to his followers, to who this is addressed, he's trying to answer in anticipation here. He's he's saying that there is a call to faithfulness, that it's done in the face of opposition, and that he will return to settle accounts. So there's a call to faithfulness that is to be lived out in a situation of opposition, and Jesus will return to settle accounts. So first, the faithfulness. When the um, nobleman comes back, he's, been, he's told his people to go do business. Um, the Kind of the connotation of that phrase is to go make a profit. He wants them to go trade and make some money with the money he's given them. And when he comes back, he, he says, um, he says he, that he wants, he wants to call his servants to him that he might know what they gain by doing business. So he wants to see what increase has happened here. And he calls the servants and they come before him one by one. The first servant comes and it goes really well. And you can see kind of a pattern here. The servant comes in and says proudly what he's done. Lord, I took your mina and I made 10 minas more. He basically got 10 times return on the money. And then there's a commendation by the master who says, um, I change pages. Well done, good servant. And then he gives a reward because, and a rationale for that reward. He gives a reward of greater authority. And it's interesting that he doesn't just give money. He doesn't give a, okay, good, you made some money with me, now go relax. He actually gives a greater increase of responsibility. This is not easiness that this servant's coming into, but it is a job to work alongside his master that he has shown himself faithful to do. And he does it for the rationale that the master gives him that for the rationale that he was faithful with little. He took this 20K and he showed that he can be faithful with this so he will give him authority over 10 cities. I mean, it's a fairly big jump. The second servant is very much like the first. There isn't the commendation, but that's most likely just narrative shortening. He wasn't like he and the master's just really not impressed with this one, so he says nothing. Jesus is just kind of shortening the story, which is also why we don't even hear about seven of the servants. But the point being that these servants were given the mina to work with, and they went and did business and made a profit. Now, it's interesting what they're commended for. 
because the command is to go make profit. So there's a focus on an increase, to go do business. And then when he comes, he comes to see what increase was um, had, what has been gained. But then when he commends them, you would expect it to read, well done, good servant, because you have gained profit in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. But he doesn't say that. He says, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. He doesn't focus in on the profit. He focuses in on the faithfulness. And this isn't just some moving of the goalposts. It would only be that if there wasn't an assumption that simply by doing business, he would have shown a profit. The thing that is being looked for here is the faithfulness. He wanted to see his servant being faithful with his money, and the profit that is shown is simply a sign that he was faithful. The measure he's still looking for here is the faithfulness. I mean, this is something that we see repeatedly. God calls us to be loving and faithful, and then he gives a lot of specific ways we can do that that show the fruits of that love and faithfulness. He calls us to love our brothers and sisters, and then he makes it very clear that that should be done in a material manner because we have a delusional heart that will, is prone to go, I love you, be blessed to the destitute. So he tries to say there is a physical fruit that should be seen as a fruit of the heart you have here. The fruit of the heart of faithfulness in these men is the profit they show in their cities. See that? There's, the faithfulness is what's being looked at here. Which brings us to the third servant. And we need to recognize that this is a servant. This is one who is professing, who is ostensibly tied to the master, to the nobleman. He has been sent out as part of everybody else here who is one of the followers of the servants of this uh, nobleman. And he also approaches to give an account, but his is very different. He doesn't come and proudly say what profit he has. He says, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. He basically took the $20,000, went home, set it on the kitchen table, and stuck a handkerchief over it and went about his day. That's not even a good way to protect the money. This is back in the day when you would have buried your money to keep it safe, which is why you get treasure in the field parables. He basically just set a handkerchief over $20,000 on the counter. Um, which shows a large degree of apathy um, on his part. But he gives reasons for this. He doesn't basically just go up and say, I covered your uh, money with a handkerchief because I just didn't care that much. He comes and gives a reason. He has two accusations he makes against the master, this uh, nobleman. He says he's a severe, harsh man, and that he basically takes profit from what he doesn't work for. So he's harsh, punishing those who do wrong, he treats, he treats people unfairly. And then if they do manage to do well and come out ahead, he takes the profit himself. So taken at face value, if you take this as an accurate stance, you can see the dilemma this third servant feels himself to be in. Basically, if I go and try to do business and I fail, I'm going to get beaten by my harsh, severe master. But if I go and do all the hard work and make a profit... He takes all the money. So basically my choices are work hard and get beaten or work hard and be destitute. Um, heads, 
you win, tails, I'm beaten, is essentially where he's sitting on this. That is his accusation. Um, what's interesting is the master doesn't turn to defend himself. Like he doesn't get up and argue, that's not who I am. Um, but the passage, it does. Luke has shown this, ma- this nobleman to not be either harsh nor to simply be profit-minded, greedily taken of his own with no recompense to the people who work. He's shown him proud and generous to the servants who came before him. It's interesting, Luke doesn't put the third servant first. He shows you two before him to show how this master responds to his servants in reality. But what the master goes on to show is not, he doesn't defend himself. What he shows is that the servant himself really didn't believe this deeply. His argument is that if you really believed that, if you really believed that I was going to punish you for failure and that I was going to demand something or else take it out on you, you would have at least put my money in the bank where I could have seen interest. His argument is that the person doesn't believe it himself and that this charge is basically slander. He's coming here to give his justification off the cuff to to justify what he has done as opposed to giving an accurate account of what he truly thinks of the master, because that would have changed his behavior from the beginning. And this happens commonly, what the, we see the third servant doing. We all have, there's a tendency in the human heart to justify, to rewrite who people are to justify our behavior towards them. We do it all the time. I see my estimation of people at work go up and down depending upon how well I'm doing with them in terms of what I'm doing for them. I fall short for them. I can figure out a reason why they probably deserved it. This is what the human heart does. This is what we do with God. Uh, I think Psalm 18. Yeah, it's Psalm 18. Speaking of God, with the merciful you show yourself merciful, with the blameless man you show yourself blameless, with the purified you show yourself pure, and with the crooked man you make yourself seem tortuous. When we are crooked towards God, when we have a heart that goes some other way, God allows himself to be perceived that way. We start to write a different narrative of who this person is, the way this third servant had written a narrative of who his master was to justify his own actions. But it does raise a question because if the master, if this is a kind of a reverse justification, if it's a justification after the fact, what prompted the behavior in the first place? Why didn't he go out and make a profit? Because he doesn't seem to be justifying a failure. He justified the fact that he did nothing. What drove the apathy in the first place? What drove him setting that money and not stepping outside to do business? Now, I mean, you can put in apathy and a distorted view from the start. I mean, he obviously didn't, there had to be some view of the master that the other servants had in place that drove them to boldly go and do business expecting to be rewarded when their master came home. That this other third servant lacked, that he didn't understand who this nobleman actually was. But we also need to put this in the context of where he was and where he was asked to do this business because there's a third 
what, fourth party in the midst of this? There's the citizens. Remember, the nobleman's been given a kingdom, well, he's going to receive a kingdom. He's going to journey a long way to wherever the full head of power is and make his petition to receive a kingdom. He has, the citizens of this area are opposed to this. They do not want him. They hate him and want him to not be king over them. So you have this house where this, king, this nobleman is the person over it that's hated enough from the outside that the idea of him being elevated infuriates these citizens around him. And then he goes away. Now, going away to receive your kingdom is not a 100% thing. Sometimes you go and you receive the kingdom. Sometimes you go and you receive part of the kingdom. Sometimes you go and you get exile. Sometimes you go and you get dead. What the servants are asked to do is to go out into the city, a city filled with citizens who hate this nobleman and do business visibly on his behalf. They are to go out and do business. And you can see why the faithfulness becomes such a large aspect here. Because it's not just go make a profit. It is go on my behalf in a place that is opposed to me while I'm away doing business because you trust that I'm coming back with that kingship. Because had he not, they would have been in a bad situation. They would have spent the past two months being the most visible face of a man who just got toppled. Imagine a kingdom falling, and the king goes into exile, and he tells his servants, watch over my house. I'll be back. They either believe he's coming back, or they're leaving through the back door. Because they would suffer for him if he didn't. So that brings to that third point, the assurance that he will return. Now, Jesus is not teaching here some detailed eschatology and some detailed theology of the end times with all the timing and mechanisms for how he gets his kingship. That's not the point here. Nor is he teaching a detailed theology of judgment. But the point that's being made is that he will return to settle accounts. He will return and it will have an impact of setting things right. And there will be rewards for some and others not so much. Now the assurance of rewards sounds great. But the assurance of judgment, not so great. Um, it's the kind of thing that can make us cringe, um, that can get really uncomfortable, as even I'm slightly uncomfortable up here right now. Um, but it's something we need. This world is not right, and it's not right in a multitude of ways. Um, it is not right in many ways to its core. It has been cursed, and it bears a mar of sin, which plays out in a myriad of ways. Um, we have, by and large, by a, the blessing of where we live, the ability to oftentimes ignore that, to pretend as though this world makes right in this age. 
that the good will eventually come out ahead. That there's the issues here are largely horizontal and that there's something we can solve if we just really work hard enough. But there, that ignores millions of people around the world who are oppressed and will be oppressed pretty much until they die. It, it ignores the martyrs. It ignores the multitude of places where things were not set right in this age. And Jesus' return and his coming to settle accounts is needed to give a structure to this. Something is going to give a structure and a meaning to the suffering and the, the pain that happens in this world. Something's going to give not a reason to it, but at least an answer. And for him to come back and say, ooh, Mulligan, let's just start over again, guys. I'm really sorry you drew the short stick on that one. And to act as though nothing had occurred would be a slap in the face of the people who have suffered and been oppressed through the years. We also struggle oftentimes, I think, with judgment because we, at least I do, still have a primary view of sin and the struggles of the world at a horizontal level. We view the challenges of humanity largely like a bunch of toddlers fighting over a ball as opposed to a bunch of kids united in patricide. But the core issue is a rebellious idolatry. And everything else flows from that. We are people who do not want a God. At least not a God that's not of our own making. Not a God who would tell us things that are uncomfortable. Not a God that would tell us to do things we don't like. It's fun, funny because you get the challenge that we recreate God in our own image and then you start talking about this and you realize it's really challenging to not talk about, to talk about God who isn't exactly the way you'd want him to be sometimes. But Jesus will return. He will return. He will settle accounts. There will be an issue called in. Sin at the cross was dealt with. He took that thing that mars humanity, that has shaped the courses and the contours of how we've lived out our shared life. And he took it upon himself, and it was judged and destroyed. Its power was broken. And when he returns, he will remove its presence. When he removes its presence, it is going to be a glorious, joyful day. But there will be people who clutch to it and are cast out with it. Now, this is not to give a literal image. He's not trying to say when Jesus returns, you don't need to picture like just a killing field in front of him as there's just people going at it with swords. But it is to give an image. Jesus is using hyperbolic, extreme language to point out this is not a good situation. This is to use the biblical phrase, this is a spot where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we have, on one hand, a reward that's given for faithfulness. On the other hand, a judgment that is given for those who oppose him. But he will return. One of the things I love in this passage is how sure his return is presented. It's subtle. 
but it's in there because he basically there is a But the citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to retain, reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, their objection lasts all of a period. And then he just returns. Doesn't even bother to, tell, um, to mention the fact that they, were, they lost. He just returns. He goes away, opposed, and comes back with a kingdom. It's that simple and that straightforward because Jesus will return to establish his kingdom to bless the faithful and cast out the rebellious. Now the challenge is the third servant. He's visibly joined to the other servants. In some ways this would be an easy parable and I think it would match the way the church has oftentimes unfortunately read these things if the third servant didn't exist. You'd have faithful servants on one side and a hateful citizens on the other. You'd have the church over here, good and pure, and you'd have the world over there judged. But what we have here is a third servant who sits in this camp. What happens to the third servant? Luke leaves this pretty unclear. He doesn't explicitly state Matthew is not as kind to the third servant. Um, in the master in Luke does refer to him as a wicked servant, which isn't a good start. But Matthew refers to him as a wicked and evil servant, has him cast out in the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew puts him in the same place as the citizens. What Jesus is doing to some degree in this parable is in story form telling what he said elsewhere. I think it's Luke 8, Luke 12, sorry, verse 8. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge. Those who do business on my behalf, I will acknowledge and bless before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And this isn't the only time we get things like this. Um, we have the passage in Matthew where it's, Lord, Lord, and his response is, I didn't know you. There's these passages that seem to make the emphasis on doing this thing or that thing and not simply being tied to calling Jesus Lord. You have the passage, or you can tie into this, the passages and things like Paul where he puts a certain person like murderer and says, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we start to get this impression that something needs to be done to get into the kingdom of God. But at the same time, we're like, well, I thought salvation was by grace through faith. Are these passages intended to, are they teaching something slightly tweaked on this? How are we supposed to take a passage like this where you see people who didn't do business being cast out? We see people who call Jesus Lord, which sounds like a profession of something being said, I didn't know him. Can a murderer not be saved? Now, we can't simply say that these passages are teaching rewards. I mean, definitely is teaching rewards, but slaughter them before me sounds a little more harsh than not getting reward. 
not inheriting the kingdom of God sounds a little harsher than not just getting a reward. I didn't know you sounds a little harsher than not just getting a reward. So what are these passages? Are we saved? Are we simply saved by grace through faith? And the answer is yes. <laughs> not to leave. I don't think anybody expected me to go a different direction on that. We are saved by grace through faith. The purpose of these passages is to warn against the things that would shipwreck that faith, that would drive us away from that grace. The world is a dangerous place. This place is not naturally inclined to support us in our faith. It's not naturally inclined to help us grow more like Christ, to persevere through this walk. We are prone to delusions about who we are and what we really care about. So every once in a while, the Bible throws a passage like this up to starkly put it in front of us, to shake us out of complacency and ask us to take a deep look. Far from supplanting grace and trying to say this is by effort, these passages are a means of grace. They are a correction given to encourage us in the path, to keep us clear, to call out the dangers on the way and help us walk the straight path with Christ. Far from being opposed to the idea of a good shepherd who sees his flock home, these passages are, some, are the shepherd speaking to his sheep and warning them to stay close to him while they walk. We are saved 100% by faith, by grace through faith. We are justified by grace. We are sanctified by grace. We will be glorified by grace. But these passages are trying to get us to clutch to the one who gives that grace, to pull tighter to him. They are not trying to give us a path to clean ourselves up. You misread these if you hear these as something where okay, I've been saved by grace, but I got to get about this business or else I'm going to lose it. You misread these if you're like, okay, I've been saved by grace. I've been set here, but I got to get over there. I've been given the map. I have to navigate it myself. Man, it's dire, but I've at least been given a map. I have, Beck and I together, have spent four years putting the fear of God into rows in a parking lot. Both my children are terrified of getting vroomed, as they refer to it, which I think is how they call them, getting run over. Um, but the point of us doing that, the point of us repeating the dangers, and we constantly repeat the dangers of a car in a parking lot because they are stupid and small. We are constantly repeating those dangers. We are not doing it so that they can then successfully navigate a parking lot. We're doing it so that every time they step close to a parking lot, they turn around and look for us. Every time they see a car, they reach and grab my hand so that I can take them across the parking lot. That is what these passages are intended to do. They are to shake us so that we look to Christ. They are to cause us to, to look at this and feel a little tinge of conviction and go, I need to run back to him. 
when we do, we find grace. When we do, we find him there, open-armed, ready to take us through the parking lots of this life. The response, if you read a passage like this and you hear judgment, you're misreading it. When Jesus told this, he was not speaking in judgment to anyone and Judas is standing there. The point is not judgment. Jesus is setting expectation and he's calling people to himself. He's saying there's going to come a day. Just come to me. And the proper response, as I said, is to hear these and just be shaken a little to see the peril. You have to look and see the peril. You have to see that this world is dangerous. We cannot pretend like this world is just a bubble-wrapped world that is happily going to help us walk and live vibrant lives of faith. Now, that's not to make us scared and run away into our little communes and um, do whatever commune people do. No idea. Like they sing with guitars. It is to cause us to clutch to Jesus, to encourage one another in our faith. It's to cause us to come together I mean, Hebrews is a book written to people who are starting to stray, who are wandering, who are feeling a fear of coming together. And are reminded that we have to come together and be encouraged day by day on this walk. The people who are at danger when they read a passage like this are the people who don't care. The people who hear this and respond with apathy or disinterest. Those are the people who come and set the $20,000, put a handkerchief on it and go about their business. If you hear this and have a response, you're doing fine. Just turn to Jesus and run to him. Hear these with somberness and conviction and clutch to Jesus in joy. I mean, we live, there's a marvel of living in a world that is opposed, a world that's dangerous and knowing that if we stay with him, he will see us through. So that's the expectation. That's what Jesus is setting people up for. There is a day that's coming when he's going to go to Jerusalem. He is almost in the, in the next, next entry in bold letters, the triumphal entry. That's what happens next. But he's going to go there and he's going to dash the expectations of the people who he's telling this parable to. He's going to get arrested and he's going to die. And then he's going to get raised again, which no one saw coming. And then... He's going to be with them for 40 days, 40, yeah. And then he will go again. He will return to his father. He will ascend. And we have here, a, he leaves his spirit that dwells within us. We are given resources. We're giving his, we literally have his spirit dwelling within us. We've been given something and we've received a call in this time to go be faithful and do business. We can trust that that business will show a profit. It doesn't always show the profit we like. It doesn't always measure the way we would like it to. Sometimes we actually just get more humble when we really would like success. But it does show a profit as the spirit works its transformation within us, both individually and as a community. So we have this spirit. We have this expectation. We have it in a world that is perilous and opposed to us, but we have a God who will see us across the parking lot. And we have it knowing that he will return to bless us in our faithfulness.
Amen.